HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, that's right. I don't know why, but I always get a giggle at the beginning of the show, which I think is a nice way to start. You know, when they say um, they say that you can hear a smile on somebody's face when they're talking, and so yes, I'm smiling uh, because I love doing my show. This is what doesn't kill you, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network, and we are a proud, proud, proud to be sponsored by Heritage Foods USA, one of my all-time favorite companies. Um, check out their website; they really have some amazing products on there. And now that I've finished writing my book about meat, which has just landed in bookstores. Thank you very much. What's the matter with meat? You can hear me talking about it on Jenna Liut's excellent show, Eating Matters. Um, she interviewed me yesterday, and it was a fine time was had by all, at least by the two of us in the studio anyway. <laughs> but anyway, so um, today we are going to be talking with Jamie Schweid, um, and Jamie is, gonna, Jamie is deep in the heart of food service. Um, he runs a company that does uh, basically sells ground meat and nothing but. And um, we're going to talk about trends in the burger business, uh, and also sort of the, the joys and sorrows of opening a new plant and so forth. But before we get to that, we're going to do this, and that is my own joys and sorrows. So I have an interesting tidbit to tell you right now, which is that the New Mexico Attorney General, and this is in a lot of different publications, you might even have seen it yourselves, um, launched a probe into the cattle industry for price fixing. Now, this includes uh, reviewing the current federal regulatory schemes and the use of New Mexico law, and uh, and they're going to use New Mexico laws to investigate giant out-of-state corporations. Why? Well, because the packers are beating the price down on growers to the point that they cannot survive. This is endemic to the meat industry, which you would learn if you read my book, um, due to consolidation, which we've talked about quite a bit on this program. When there are only a few packers who control 80% of the entire industry, you can see that growers are basically at the mercy of the processing of their processing and their pricing. So I'm hoping to get this attorney general, Hector Balderas, I think his name is, uh, to talk about the case. So far, his uh, office has not responded, but I will 
keep after them because that's the kind of person that I am. Um, this is happening, by the way, remember that we've talked, uh, we talked with Chris Leonard a few months ago about uh, price fixing in the poultry industry. This is what happens when you have monopolies. These guys are controlling all the pricing, both to uh, grocery retailers and also to the people who are growing the food. So, uh, you know, there, there has to be some invocation of the Sherman Act or some sort of antitrust legislation, which, of course, I think we can all assume uh, pretty safely will not be happening under this administration um, unless there is tremendous uh support from other attorney generals and so on in uh, bringing these cases to court. So anyway, that's that story. And it's if the wildfires in Oklahoma and Kansas, remember I did a show a few weeks ago about the Panhandle Relief Organization, a grassroots organization that was bringing bales of hay and forage to uh, Colorado, Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, all of which had been decimated in these terrible wildfires in March. Um, There was a massive blizzard this past week. Um, I think it dropped something like two and a half feet of snow uh, across Oklahoma and Kansas and uh, has led to thousands of deaths of cattle. In fact, they haven't even counted them yet. I mean, people who are generally sort of small scale cattle producers who have them out on pasture already, it being spring and whatnot. You know, if you owned uh, 250 head, you might have, mm, I don't know, maybe 120 left. Uh, if you're lucky, that's those were some of the figures that I saw. So like the, some of the cattle would find a windbreak and stay huddled together and others would just get lost in the blinding snow, wander off and freeze to death. Because believe it or not, cattle actually need to be protected from weather. Um, In addition, the blizzards, by the way, also crushed the wheat crop uh, in Kansas. And Kansas produces about 60% of the crop for the entire country. So that's, oh no, 80% of the crop for the entire country. Um, So that's that's a fairly significant loss as well. So I think it's safe to say that... um, Climate change is having an impact on our farming sector in a big, bad way. Um, So we're going to hope that uh, somebody pays attention to climate change, but I don't think it's going to happen. And then uh, my last item today is um, just to stay on the Midwest for a minute. AgWeb, which is a wonderful agricultural, uh, you know, publication that I read fairly regularly, has a slew of stories about the incredibly high levels of nitrates in drinking water uh, that come from agricultural runoff. And um, what's interesting is is that while some of the towns seem to be perfectly happy uh, having to rely on bottled water for drinking, which I guess they get for free, um, there is also considerable worry about the fact that unpotable drinking water reduces their property values. Well, duh! So even though these voters tend to be ardent supporters of Trump and long for the EPA to go away, they still want federal money to build a new water treatment plant. So go figure. I mean, I I just I don't get these voters. I just don't get them. Like, why would you not want the EPA to help you as you know, do what needs to be done to clean up the drinking water? I mean, these people are not really thinking very clearly. And it's very similar to the situation that's happening in Des Moines, Iowa, which and we've had that guy uh, Bill Stowe on the show two or three times now to talk about first he sued the upriver counties. He lost. He took it to federal court. They dismissed. And now they're trying to um, basically put him and and the Des Moines Water Works out of business and put it under state control so that they can just basically pollute with impunity. And, you know, this kind of thing has to stop. There has to be some regulations on this. And this this the lobbying arm of these big mega agribusinesses uh, is obviously so powerful that even state governors fail to um, 
protect their populations from these, uh, impu- you know, the, these polluters who uh, pollute, these people who pollute with impunity. I'm sorry. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, we're going to take a quick sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Jamie Schweid, uh, the president of Schweid and Sons, a premier burger maker. And we'll be talking about trends in the industry. I can't wait. He's been on the show before, so stay tuned. <laughs> Heritage Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Foods got its start when Patrick Martin's first stepped foot onto Frank Reese's Kansas farm in 2001. Back then, Frank was the only farmer in America raising true heritage turkeys with recorded lineages tracing back more than 150 years. Patrick knew instantly he'd found a unique moment, an opportunity to go beyond acknowledging these breeds as being jeopardized and to actually do something to save them. Patrick asked Frank to ramp up production and made a promise to him that if he would raise them, Heritage Foods USA would sell them. That was the moment that Heritage Foods' slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Yeah. And trust me when I tell you, you want those pork chops. They are fabulous. Um, This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. And we're going to be talking today with Jamie Schweid. Jamie is the president of Schweid & Sons, a family-owned, fourth-generation ground beef purveyor. Jamie works alongside his father, David, and his brother, Brad, to bring you the very best burger to consumers by offering a range of high-quality ground beef blends. Welcome back to the show, Jamie. Thanks for joining me. Katie, how are you today? I'm good. It's nice to hear your voice again. Remember, you were on like three years ago. Oh, I remember well. It was great. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about um, the growth of the burger category in the last 15 years, just to kind of set up what's been happening in that that part of the segment of the restaurant industry. Uh, Let me jump into that in a second, but I really appreciate and enjoy the news that you shared uh, in the beginning of the telecast because it's very present in our business today. I would think so. uh, Yes, with what's happening um, in the Midwest with these uh, vi- uh, volatile weather. And it's really driven up the prices of, of beef over the last couple of weeks significantly. So it's really a timely conversation with a Memorial Day coming quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, why don't we yeah. stick on that topic for a second? Just how much, what kind of percentage are you talking about in terms of the price of beef? Because the supply was tight already, correct? And then now we have these, you know, additional casualties in the in the cattle market. Um, what what kind of percentage are you seeing in terms of uh, raising prices? Oh, I mean, it's astronomical. 50, I mean, the markets have gone up 40, 50, 60 percent in some areas. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and just so you know, the, actually, cattle supply has loosened up significantly over the last six to nine months. Probably uh-huh. maybe a little longer than that. Um, the, if, if you look at the cattle on feed numbers, they've increased. And substantial in our business is, you know, 2 to 3 percent. But, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing uh, a lot of, of cattle available. But, like you said, what's, what's hurt us over the last uh, couple of weeks has been this huge storm that hit the Midwest in this rampant snow that has killed a lot of, of cattle and um, has, has hurt the supply. And I don't know that we know the effects of this today. It'll probably take uh, some weeks to, to really figure out what the 
whole implication is uh, of these storms. Yeah, I agree. And plus the wildfires before that. So there was a lot of cattle lost in those as well. So yeah. I, I haven't seen any numbers specifically, even though I look at the papers. You know, I look at the trades quite a bit to try to find that stuff out. But I don't, especially with the blizzard, I don't think they've really counted up. I don't think the I don't think the ranchers themselves are really aware because a lot of the cattle were out on range, and that's why yeah. they couldn't get them in. You know, into a, a sheltered position before the storm hit. I gather it came on pretty fast. Yeah, and it's also very you know independent. Uh, business. So you have, it's, you know, it's very tough to get all the information reported when you have a ton of independent ranchers and farmers yeah. to report that information to uh, data services. Yeah, because this is cattle that before they go to a feedlot, this is not, you know, this is not confined area, concentrated area feeding operations that suffered these losses. Correct. These are these are the Correct. guys who are the stalker feeders um, or the cow-calf operator, operators, and they generally tend to be much smaller entities. Um, yep. And that's why there's so many exactly. of them, right? Yep, exactly, exactly. It's a very, very, and I'm, I'm very interested in choosing to read your book uh, because it seems to touch upon a lot of those points where you have a largely independent uh, you know, base of uh, business that's selling to a, a large, large conglomerate, uh, or actually not large, but large companies, but only four or five of them. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, that vast part, yeah. Yeah, I have a whole chapter on consolidation. In fact, if you listen, the the first item I read about was this guy in New Mexico, the attorney general, who's yeah. looking into suing some of those big players for price fixing because they're killing those ranchers. They're not paying a fair price because the guys have no place to go with their cattle to process them. How yeah, does that play out for somebody like you? How does that play out for your for your segment of the industry in terms of of the consolidation? Because you know um, we're going to go right off topic here, but but you know how the poultry industry is being sued by um, grocers and retailers for price mm-hmm. fixing. So is that? Do you feel like that stuff is happening in the cattle industry from your end of it as well as them beating the prices down for the ranchers? Well, I think the big difference in the two industries is the protocol integration piece. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, in, in the chicken business, it's much more vertically integrated. Yeah. And in addition, and in addition, the, the life cycle of a, of a chicken is much faster than cattle. Sure. You're doing it three to five years, so there um, there could be um, an opportunity to maybe have some more uh, uh, price fixing that, that goes involved in chicken as opposed to beef. I don't know that it necessarily affects our business, only in the sense that um, it's supply, right? So mm-hmm. our big, our big concern when the cattle has, uh, or when there's not enough cattle on feed, that we we are always looking for more supply. And I think that as uh, as the last 12 months have gone for us, hopefully in the future, that with more cattle on feed, the the situation between the, the cattle ranchers and the packers. Um, you know, we'd like unity, we'd like harmony, we'd like for everybody in the whole supply chain to make money. Right. Uh, and I'm hoping, and I'm, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, that that continues. I mean, the challenge we have is the volatility, like you said, where, you know, some, some like right now the calf cow producers are, are doing really, really well. Live cattle is up um, to almost record numbers again. And, you know, the packers now, uh, they're, they're, they're hemorrhaging money. And then, you know, it's, it's a very vicious cycle. And we somehow have to figure out economically, how everyone in the supply chain can make money and not have these volatile movements up and down because those cause uh, tremendous issues for cat cow producers, for the packers, and then for us ground beef processors because ultimately for us to then pass that cost along to the retailers or to the food service customers is nearly impossible. None of, these, none of our customers are going to take that type of increase. We have to really 
we'll remove the prices up, mm-hmm. and and um, you know, and for us, then it's a, a financial deficit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's go back for a second to what you just said about how the Packers are hemorrhaging money when the cow-calf producers are making money. H- how does that work? Well, so if you look at the cost of cattle today, right, that's what the cow-calf producer sells the animal to the packer for. Uh-huh. And the higher, higher that cost is, the more money the packer has to generate from the carcass cutout. Uh-huh. And, and so if, if the... Packer can't go to the retailer, go to us, and say, okay, we're going to increase our middle meat 25 20%. We're going to increase our ground beef 10 or 15%. Or there's no demand for that product. What ends up happening is, is that they get stuck having to sell that product at a, at a cheaper price. So ultimately, the whole carcass, the whole cutout piece doesn't add up to what they're paying for, uh, for the cattle. Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. But isn't it true yeah. that they very much control the price per pound that uh, they give to the producers, to the, to the uh, you know, the stalker feeders? So I, I, don't, I don't have that much knowledge in terms of, of how that works. Because um, our business typically is we're dealing primarily with the packers, not with the, right. the calf-cow producers. So that, that I, I, I can't really speak to. Okay. Yeah, because I mean that's what that suit in the in New Mexico is is all about. It's the fact that the pro- because there are so few processors, they basically can dictate um, price and schedule to the producers, and that's what the producers are screaming about. And that's what the whole uh, the whole gypsa thing is about. You know, the whole yep. right, all those gypsa rules that were supposed to come into effect that haven't. Blah blah blah. And there's a whole RCAF and all these other organizations that are crying foul about how the consolidation of the market is killing them. So I, I think it's interesting to hear that, you know, on some level, the Packers are also taking a, taking a beating. Um, I, I'm still not understanding exactly. I mean, I, I heard what you said, but it's, it's still not completely adding up to me. But anyway, I'll, I'll have to read up on that, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a mean, very I'm complex equation, right? I mean, it's, it is. there's it nothing is. easy about it's, this. Oh, my gosh. It is, it, it is so complex. About you know how um, how how you know both both sides whether it's the packer or the cash cow producer because really because of the long cycle yeah and and you know, the, you know this three to five year cycle of raising cattle um, especially grain fed cattle is you know causes sort of these again you know the 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 volatile day to day movements when it's a really a market that does, that, that takes months and years to to fundamentally shift right sure right and then the, then you, on top of that you have all of the the speculation on the commodity market so you don't know what your cost of feed is going to be right so you yeah. have like all of the fluctuations in corn and soy and you know some of the other oil seeds and grains that they use for cattle feed it it, it definitely has a lot of moving parts but let's go back to Schweid and Sons yeah, for a second let's go back <laughs> let's have it let's do our infomercial um no tell us about so you guys just you just the reason i i invited you onto the show was to talk about your expansion you just built a new plant in um georgia right and so yeah. what what so that means the burger business is clearly thriving. Tell us about the plant and what's what has happened. What what well, what has yeah. changed in your business that that you know encouraged you to make this big financial step? Well, I I, I always joke to, to friends of mine when we talk about the expansion that you know we're we're a forty year overnight success. And my father started the business forty years ago right. making ground beef and you know, it's sort of had its, it's having its moment, right? And yeah. The last 10 or 15 years, it's having its moment. And, you know, just 
um, you know, over the last 15 years, you've had a couple things that have really promoted uh, ground beef. You've had this, this creation of a better burger category right. that the five guys of the world have created, which has created a, a demand for premium ground beef. Um, then you have the second piece, which is um, the, the economy, right? So when 2008-2009 came about and the economic downturn hit, uh, right. consumers have less money. And most in, in, in recessions, ground beef does really well because it's a lower-priced item. Sure. So it, it, it grew, and, and the better burger categories grew. But what happened was is that there hasn't been this, this movement back to stakes uh, as significantly as, as, as we thought, and that has continued the growth in, in ground beef. And so it's been very exciting to see... Um, you know, this, this category, which, by the way, ground beef is the, is the largest category within the beef uh, industry as well, wow. continue to grow. Yeah, it, it, it accounts for, uh, you know, over 50% of, of sales at the retail, ground beef does. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what happened was with our businesses, you know, uh, we grew, we grew, we grew, and, um, you know, my father created some great relationships and great customers, and uh, my brother and I were fortunate enough to continue those and grow our business. And ultimately what we found is is that the, the plant capacity in New Jersey um, was filling up, and strategically we hired a company that um, looked at our business and looked at where our growth opportunities were growth opportunities are and figured that Atlanta, the southeast, would be a great place for a new facility. Um, for us, it's, it's we're moving about 30% of our current business into that building, and it opens up uh, some really great markets for us. So Texas, which we really haven't been that active in, uh-huh. allows us to go in and sell retailers and food service customers in Texas. And also, which I think is really important, is our existing customers. We're able to service those customers now uh, in a much timelier manner. So we're making fresher ground beef uh, that's getting to there, whether it's the retailer or whether it's to the restaurant in a, in a faster manner. Now, I, when I spoke to you three years ago, I don't recall that you were selling so much into supermarkets, and now you seem to have a very big cohort of supermarket customers. Is that new, or is that something that's always existed and I just didn't realize it? No, no, it's new. No, it's new. Um, you know, our, our business was 100% food service. Yeah, so I thought. Four, four years ago, and, um, you know, we... We looked at our, our business and said, where can we find growth? And the food service business at that time was growing anywhere 1% to 2% net inflation. And, you know, we wanted to find areas where we think that there was growth. The other thing, which I thought was really, really interesting, is if you walk through a retail store, there's been no innovation in the ground beef space for 30, 35 years. Same yeah, ground absolutely. truck, same ground sirloin. And we've, we've been creating these, these custom blends and these high-end uh, ground beef and burgers for our customers in food service, and for, for some reason it didn't translate over into retail. So we looked at it and said, here's a great opportunity to sell to retail consumers uh, custom blends that they're, they're consuming already in food service and sell them at the retail level. So it's been, uh, truthfully, uh, we're, we're, we're so overwhelmed with uh, the success. I mean, it's been, it's been, it's been unbelievable. It's been great. I, I'm just, I'm like shocked at how successful it's been. Yeah, I think you're a genius. I really do. I mean, I I don't understand why other people didn't like glom onto that when the burger thing just took off. What was it like ten years ago? Yeah. Anyway, well, well good for you, Jamie yeah. Schwide, for figuring that one out. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually, well, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm saying you know, I, I, I'd like to say uh, brilliant. It's just it's just 
you know, you're, you're, if you're in a business and you're focused on your business specifically, you know, it's almost like things like Uber. Like, it, it, those are things that after the fact make complete sense. I'm like, how come someone didn't think about it? It's like the same thing with me. We just had an aha moment in the office, and we're like, why don't we try this and see what happens? Now, how, let me ask you, how did you sort of create, I mean, do people buy the brand? It says Schweiden Sons, right? It's not Better Burger. Correct. So Correct. how do they know, like, they just see, like, a nice-looking piece of package, packaging, and it says, you know, this is like a special custom blend of blah, blah, blah. And the consumer is sufficiently educated about that to understand that that's going to be a better value or at least a better flavor experience than uh, your traditional ground beef. I mean, have you done any consumer, um, I don't know, marketing? Yes. Okay. So tell y- me the about that. Your questions are yes, yes. And I'll give you the, the, the quick story. So sure. when we first got our, uh, our first retail customer, um, we shipped the product in, and I turned to my brother and father, and I said, we're, we're screwed. And they looked at me and go, why? I go, I don't know who's going to buy this. Right. No one knows who we are. We're a food service brand. Um, you know, no one's ever heard of us. But what we found is, later on, when we've done consumer testing and trials, is that the packaging has created trial at the, at the, at the store. So they see a nice... Uh, beautiful sleeve that we do that looks like butcher paper, mm-hmm. and the consumer says, wow, this must be a good product. So that's initially how we create a trial. Now we've, um, you know, what we've done is we've, we've put a, a big marketing campaign towards education, just like you've mentioned, about the cuts of beef that we're using in the product, or, you know, in the retail product, um, the taste profile, et cetera. So we've done a big upgrade of our, uh, our packaging to really educate the consumer. And then also from our website to our experiential events that we're involved in, in in South Beach, in Boston, we're really getting out this message of education. And I think that, like, your show, for example, (laughs) the consumer is demanding more education on their product, and and we feel that we're ultimately very transparent in who we we are and what we do, and I think it's a a big plus, um, you know, in this world today. Oh, I think so. I think, I mean, one of the things that I know a lot of people worry about in terms of ground beef, and I know that you buy beef from Australia, or at least you used to, um, is country of origin labeling. A lot of consumers are very worried about where their burger meat has come from. Are you able to, like, address some of those concerns? In your packaging? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, we can. I mean, we, we can talk about the cuts of beef. We can, you know, it's not mandatory anymore to, right. to put country of origin labeling on your product. But I think that that's, that's ultimately what, how we're going to succeed in, in this business, in the ground beef business, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lack of transparency. There's a lack of information. Yeah. And I think for us to go overboard with that information. So, you know, we have a grass-fed program out there right now, and it's all domestic, because that's something that we made a commitment to. Right. Um, uh, you know, on, on our products there. And, then, you know, we have our whole muscle cuts that we do for our blends, and those are all domestic um, cuts of beef. So we, we make an effort and a concerted effort to, to get that education out there. And I think uh, I think what's made us successful in the industry is just to take the, the approach of, hey, you know what, we're not, we are who we are, and this is what we do, and we want to educate you, and we're, we're open to, you know, consumer feedback, but, you know, we want to tell our story and our narrative to our customers, and part of that is, like you said, is sharing with the customers, you know, where that beef comes from. Uh-huh, absolutely. So who, who in general are your suppliers? You have new suppliers in the South or the Midwest? The South, I don't think of as cattle country, so, but are you buying from ranchers in Texas, for example, or... But you'd be surprised, actually, about the uh, Florida. From from what I'm told, has one of the largest cattle um, supplies in the in the country. I did not know that. Yes, I didn't either. I was I actually had the question, and then I and then I and then I uh, <laughs> was proven wrong. Um, so what we've done is, 
here's here's our thought process. So we buy a lot from the, the larger packers that are probably mentioned in your book. You know, we are mm-hmm. uh, believers in a lot of the, the quality control points um, that they uh, adhere to, and I think a lot of it also has to do with uh, you know the, the money they put into food safety. We do uh, purchase from some smaller suppliers that are that are regional based, but as your book will. Uh, it's probably shown, and I haven't read it yet, but I can imagine there really isn't that many suppliers left to buy from nope. that we that we qualify as safe, uh, you know, as safe and quality beef. And so, um, right. you know, we're we're hoping that um, more and more uh, you know folks come into the into the marketplace and packers so that the, that we continue to have more supply. Well, I, I don't I don't think the packers are going to be welcoming any new. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was going to ask you about vertical integration for your company. For example, um, in other words, buying directly from uh, suppliers and, and bypassing the big industrial, um, you know, megalopolis. Um, is there any chance you would ever do that? Or you guys, you buy whole cuts of meat and then you grind them to your specific blends? That's how your plant works? That's what you do? Yeah, I, I think, though, what, what, what's unfortunate about about our business today is, is that we can't drive a lot of innovation or change because the Packers are, are you know, they're, they're big entities. But I think what's happening, which has been very, very, um, you know, surprising, and also I think encouraging, is the, the, the big food service restaurants, those are, are really driving change yeah. with the Packers. So whether it's, you know, GMO or... Um, you know, page-free. So what we're starting to see is more of that coming into 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 the marketplace. And you know, for us, our, our natural business and our, our grass-fed business is growing exponentially now. It, it, the base of business is obviously much smaller than what our our commodity business is. But sure. um, you know, it's growing. And, and what what has happened to us in the past has been the, the, the supply constraint. So you know, yeah. the the fact is, we've been selling natural for ten. 12 years, but we ran up against some um, some supply issues, and that, those are starting to go away as the you know as everyone's joined sort of Chipotle and using natural beef, organic, and uh, you know all of the what I like to call the confusing nomenclature on packaging. Um, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that only that like only someone like me knows because I I get paid to do it for uh, you know it's my right. job. Right. Right. Um, you know, it, it's driving it's driving the Packers to start to produce more of natural product, and and I think it's it's, it's going to help over time. Again, like we talk about, you know, I've talked about uh, a couple times this three to five year cycle, you'll start to see more and more natural product come to the marketplace and grass fed as well. Right, right. So, what's the difference between grass fed and natural, Jamie? Well, so so the devil's in the details um, because not all grass fed is natural product. Meaning natural means what, though? I mean, because to me, natural means absolutely nothing. Natural means no yes. water, no no additives. I mean, that's the technical okay. term. Yes. So what are you so saying when you say natural? Okay, so that's great. So the, so the, the technical term is, um, for natural, is, like you said, no additives preserved. So theoretically, for all the retail product that we sell, we can put all natural on it because we don't have any additives in our beef. Mm-hmm. However, that, that to me is... Um, misrepresenting what actually natural means in the beef business, which is uh, no antibiotic steroids or hormones are, are, that are involved in the in the product. Uh-huh. So, but, but within that, within that, there's also two definitions. There's a what's called a withdrawal program, right? And there's called just a pure all natural. Our products are all natural. We right. we don't subscribe to the withdrawal program. Um, but that's what it is. So, uh, grass that can be natural, 
right, if there's no antibiotic surgical hormones, but there also can be grass-fed that is not natural. If, let's say, a, a steroid, or, or which probably wouldn't be needed, but like an antibiotic is included in the, you know, uh, in the animal. Right, right. I mean, like prophylactic antibiotics for growth promotion. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, well, yeah. So, well, you know, let's say the, the, the cattle, uh, the grass cattle, if you get sick, they have to treat that animal. And, for sure. Uh, the, and so they would use an antibiotic. So that means it's still grass-fed, but it's not, you know, all-natural antibiotic-free. Right, right. Although I would consider it antibiotic-free, I have to say. I mean, I, okay. you know, I think, I mean, just, I, just my own thing. I mean, to me, you know, the use of antibiotics as a prophylactic uh, is a completely different animal from treating an animal when it's sick with an antibiotic on a one-shot basis. You know what I'm saying? I think that's, those are two, obviously, two very different usages. And by the way, now that the Veterinary Feed Directive is coming online and they are going to be obliged to stop using over-the-counter products and only use antibiotics when they're prescribed by a veterinarian, I think that's going to have a big impact on the business. I don't know quite what, but I think it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, you, one of the things that really interested me was your um, to, to go back to sort of like uh, – uh, the point that you were just making about, you know, your brand differentiation, your publicist conveyed these uh, various stats to me. Sales of conventional meat last year grew less than 3% in value compared with a 12% uptick for meat labeled natural and 23% gain in sales of meat labeled antibiotic free. So um, so that's basically what you guys are doing. And you're, you're kind of in a way capitalizing on that trend because you've been able to secure suppliers uh, who can create that that uh, product stream for you on a on a regular basis? Can you talk a little bit more about how you kind of source that out? Because obviously that was not something that was um, you know antibiotic free, especially that was not uh, readily available. Shall we say that was very much a niche product uh, only just a few years ago. So talk a little bit about how that sort of that trend is expanded and why um, that's been so useful to you guys. Not to be well, redundant or it, anything, but, you know. Yeah. No, if you've looked at the, I mean, we've, we've studied and looked at the, right, the, the, what we like to call the customer journey. And mm-hmm. we, we, we look at the, not only the millennial, I think that there, there's a lot of uh, tension going in millennials, but also the Generation Y as well, um, that, or Generation X, excuse me, that they're, they're very educated and they're also concerned about their food supply. and. Right. You know, whether it's the whole foods of the world that are, you know, that have emerged and or uh, walking to a conventional retailer now that has a fully uh, stocked or- organics program. Um, you know, the, 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 the cost of, of natural and the cost of some of this product has come down in pricing because of scale. Right. And so now that, they're, now that the, again, there's more of these food service companies on there that are driving the, the volume, what's happening is the cost has come down. And so now the consumer although still has to make a, um, a value proposition of do I, do I want to pay X amount more for organic or natural product, the prices have come down enough where more and more people are making that decision. And so what's right. happening for us is, which has been great, is you know, we've partnered with these you know, natural suppliers for the last 10 or 15 years. Uh-huh. It just hasn't been a, it hasn't been a large part of our business because there hasn't been supply available. Right and now, that's the, yeah. So you know, probably seven eight years ago, um, you know, we we sort of stopped adding new natural clients because um, our supply chain just stopped, and they said, look, we can't because we're ground beef, right? So we're we're just a small part of the animal. Um, the middle meat, which is the middle meat, which is where all the 
uh, you know, the, the price is at, so, you know, you're eight, nine, right, $10. Your states, always, your, there, yeah. there hasn't been a tremendous amount of demand um, on the middle meets. There wasn't back then. Now that seems to be picking up steam. So what's happening is, when we, you know, I mentioned it before with the whole animal, the carcass cut up, so they're getting value. They're, they're, they're getting consumers paying a premium for not only the end meats, the ground beef, the roast beef, the, you know, things like that, but also getting it for the middle meats, the, um, the, the strips, the ribeyes, et cetera. So right. it's now, now that there's more supply, it allows me to go out to, to retailers and to food service customers to, to, to sell more of this supply. Right, right. So you don't see yourself ever becoming, uh, you know, not working with a middleman, but working with it directly with like a White Oak Pastures or something like that? You don't ever see your company? Because now that you're in Georgia, I'm thinking, you know, my God, got the ultimate, the ultimate and fabulous beef quality is right there at your fingertips. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we're, we're part of our, what, what I think has made us successful is that we're looking, we are in, looking to innovate in any way, in any way possible. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and be at the forefront of, of where the markets are. So there's no reason that we wouldn't partner with, uh, you know, a White Oak Pastures or someone like that. I think, you know, where, where as long as we're only responsible for grinding up ground beef, you know, the, the, if we were involved in the whole animal, we don't have outlets to sell all the middle meats and everything else. Right. So, so that's why it's tough for us to, to get involved in, in, in what, what's called in the industry a cattle pack program, where you're, in essence, buying the, the cattle and you're, right. you know, you're using the pieces and selling the pieces you have and whatever, whatever else is available, the, the packer or the uh, fabricator would, would sell off. Um, I think that as the, our business evolves, there'll be more of those white oak pastures and those type companies that we'll partner with regionally because we're, we've just launched a local program as well. And so we're looking for local suppliers that we can, um, you know, walk into a food service customer or a retail customer and say, right. this is local beef to Georgia, this is local beef to New York, New Jersey, or South Carolina, or whatever it is, uh-huh. and so that they can, yeah, so they can support their local uh, farmers around here. So it, it's starting. I mean, you know, again, it, it comes back to uh, supply. I mean, we, we have a program today. Um, in New Jersey, uh, that we launched, that's that's you know that's doing okay. In about six months, we'll launch one in Georgia. We'll we'll, we'll find try to find a partner in the Georgia market uh-huh. so that we can sell this local. You know, we can sell local supply because we want it to be local. You know, we want it to be ground locally and sourced locally. Not hey. You know, I'm selling a customer in Jersey, but I bought the meat in Iowa. Right, right, right. That is difficult, though, to go back to what you were saying about, like, I mean, okay, so a large part of an animal winds up as ground beef. There's no question about that. But, I mean, you have to partner basically with the packer and say, I want the ground meat part, but you get the rest and you sell the rest. And that, I mean, I I would imagine that's quite a challenging uh, equation to, you know, parse. I think it sounds pretty tough. But I... I, Yeah, because everybody wants to sell the ground beef. That's why. Yeah, right. Good profit yeah. margin on it, right? Um, I, yeah, well, it's, it's where the most demand is. Not necessarily the, the highest profit margin, uh-huh. but it's where the most demand is. And, and, it's, and it's, quote, unquote, because it's the lowest cost product, it's the easiest product to sell. Right, right. I think I think this is fascinating because, like, probably seven or eight years ago, um, you know, the, the the every other block was opening a new steakhouse, and it was all about steak, 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 steak. And I know, like, um, do you know the guys at DeBraga and Spitler here in New York, George Mason and I Mark? Do. Yeah, really great guys. I mean, they guys. they made a fortune on that. I mean, or at least they expanded their business hugely because so many steakhouses were coming to them because they did that custom aging program. And I, you know, it's it's sort of interesting that. Um, I mean, obviously they're still doing very well, but it's, it is fascinating to me that the, that sort of the stake, the, the, the rise of the steakhouse has kind of 
seen its better days, I would say. And it's really more about Shake Shack and, you know, all the kinds of stuff that you, you all are doing. Well, it's like a, it's a, it's like every market, right? It, you know, it, it, it goes on its run, it expands too rapidly, and then you start to see contraction in the market, just like casual dining is, is today. And then the, the great operators will survive, and you know, it'll be a, it'll be a good business to be in in a couple of years again. Right, fascinating. So, talk a little bit about what what it took to open this new facility. Did you have to? Was it difficult to get permits? Did you, you have to jump through some sort of hoops? Were you offered tax incentives to establish a business in Georgia? Who did you deal with, and how did that work? Uh, so it, it was a, it was a long process, uh-huh. uh, a long journey. But but all of those things that you mentioned are correct. Uh, so you know when we looked to source uh, a building, we want we were creating jobs in a, in a marketplace. So we were able to uh, partner with uh, there's a, a tax credit that the government offers that they were able to provide us, which was which is which is great. And then also the, the state of Georgia and the uh, Fulton County, which is where the facility is, is really phenomenal at generating jobs and generating. Uh, growth. So they, uh-huh. they have been phenomenal in helping us out. So they've, they've assisted us in some tax rebates there. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the Fulton County has been really great to work with in terms of uh, in terms of our business. So whether it's Georgia Power, you know, getting, because we have to get additional power into the building right. or getting permits. So none of those, none of those issues were, um, actually the only issue we had was with Comcast, <laughs> to be honest with you. Really? So getting yeah, internet. Took, yeah, you know, it took, it took us six months for them to run a, a, a fiber wire into our building. But, oh my um, God! You know, yeah. But the edu- you know, what 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 we did was, or what I, uh, you know, my brother and I did was, was became insanely educated on on a lot of facets of the business we, we never thought we would. So, you know, I, I flew to uh, I flew internationally to find the best uh, grinding automation system uh, that we could find. And so I went to two or three different countries, looked at different equipment, products, et cetera, to really find the best source of, uh-huh. of equipment. And you then mean also you didn't go to the big show? The There's a Pardon? huge show in Atlanta that shows all of that stuff. I, I can't remember what it's called now, but I, I went yeah. to it last couple, two years ago. It was great. Anyway, so you got yeah. to fly internationally. You looked at equipment. Where did you buy from? Uh, well, so we ended up... Ended up um, Sticking with the, the equipment that we have purchased in our Jersey facility, uh, but what we did was is we, we we automated our whole grinding system. So what we can do now is we can uh, you know show our customers that, that when we promise a fat to lean ratio uh, on our patties that we can get it down to the point oh oh one percent. We have a, oh. a very very expensive machine that analyzes every cut of piece that goes through. Um, goes on our conveyor for any type of metal object, but also for our factory ratio. What it also does, it's able to allocate uh, our specific formulas to our, uh, you know, to our forming equipment. So, for example, if we make 250 pounds of chuck brisket and, you know, 180 pounds of chuck brisket short ribs, the meat is automatically allocated to, you know, our different forming equipment. So whether it's in a ground beef bulk or if it's in a patty, we know exactly what meat we made, where it went to, and how much weight was there. So we can assure our customers the exact, precise formulas and product uh, was given to them. And then, and then also on the tail end of it, we, we look, we're, we're installing robotic uh, automation for packing off. So what we identified is, you know, what are the two biggest factors for any organization right now? You have $15 minimum wage, and you have um, you know, higher health care costs. So what we're looking to do is automate our facility bring in labor we're actually not redu- we're not reducing labor we're bringing in higher more qualified or, or uh, labor force that that knows 
you know, uh, robotics, uh, automation, but also understands demand planning and things like that. So the, the workforce demands have changed. And um, it's really moving our business in the 21st century. That is fascinating. That's pro- we could do a whole show on that, Jamie. Yeah, that is yeah. fascinating. We're going to have to come back to that topic because right now we have to wrap it up. So um, people can find out more about Schweiden Sons. I think you're just like an amazing business model to look at um, just because you guys have capitalized on a trend so successfully and um, clearly are continuing to do that. I hope the local programs work. I really do. That's such a good idea. Um, we're going to stick with it. I mean, you know, just like natural, we're going to stick with it. We, we know it. So uh, it's like anything else. When you're first to market, it's going to be slow in the beginning. But yeah. we know that. But we're committed to it, and we know that it's something that's important. Um, but, uh, you know, for local programs and other things, you know, our website is a great resource to find out where our, uh, our retail products are. We're in... I think it's about 5,000 retail stores. We just started selling Meyer uh, in uh, in the Midwest. Uh, we're locally. We're in uh, Shoprite. We're in Key Foods. We're in Grace's Marketplace. We're in. I know I'm going to miss, so I'm going to get in trouble. I'm we're kind of surprised by. I, I'm actually kind of surprised you're in places like Key Foods and Shoprite, because I would have thought. I don't know what the price point is on your thing, but I would have thought you're a little bit high end for those particular markets. I would have seen you more in a Wegmans. Um, Grace's, obviously. Um, it, it was an interesting mix on the website of what your retail customers' um, spread is. I thought that was a fascinating story in and of yeah. itself. What, what we found is that we're actually we're an, we're an aspirational, we're, we're, a, a, we're an affordable luxury. Right. I mean, if you, if, right, if you think about it, we're selling um, ground beef anywhere from six ninety nine to nine ninety nine, where your cost in the store today are let's say three ninety nine or four ninety nine. So right. we're not looking. So that that's why um, you know when we walked into Shoprite, um, I was you know I was a little concerned. But if you walk around Shoprite in the beginning, they are. I mean, they have a great uh, value proposition. They have a lot of quality products that are, you know, that really they do a great job in sourcing. They have a great nutritional program. I think each store now has its own nutritionist. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. yeah. I love ShopRite, actually. I think ShopRite's a great chain. There's like 17 of them, I think. Um, And I think they're still family-owned. And um, they have a a tremendous mix of ethnic products because of the wide base of, uh, you know, the wide diversity of their customer base. Um, So that, I've always enjoyed the store just looking around to see what they've got, especially in the meat counter, because they really have some weird, funky stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, which is good, especially um, in the in the different ethnic areas. So whether it's they'll have kosher, they'll have halal, they'll have Hispanic uh, array of products. They're really good at, at capturing the local market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining me today, and thank you to Heritage Foods USA for supporting the station. Um, and uh, thanks so much, Jamie, for being on the show again. Let's talk again about the the whole robotics and the and the sort of change in the workforce thing. I'll, I'll call you in a few months, and we'll make we'll set that up because I think that's a really interesting discussion to have about the future of food service and how you know how all of these jobs are really kind of headed for the chopping block and something totally yeah. new is going to take their place right and you guys are right in the yeah. forefront of it so that's groovy thanks for listening folks and we'll see you next week and uh thanks again jamie and thank you to dave my engineer as always so long for now for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.